Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. And I'm Leah Kaufman. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about their interests. So that we can bring you the interviews and information that you'd like to hear, we hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a cozy McGowan Institute fleece vest. Thanks, Leah. And now on to today's podcast. Leah, please tell us about our guest. As part of our series on heart disease and solutions from the field of regenerative medicine, we'll hear from Dr. Bill Wagner of the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Wagner's laboratory is working on several projects, including a laboratory-made material, or scaffold, that may help heart tissue regain more function after a heart attack, rather than be hampered by scar tissue. You'll also hear Dr. Wagner describe his work to make artificial devices more compatible with the natural tissues they are joined with and about a non-invasive way to get a good look at heart disease. Thanks, and let's hear your conversation with Dr. Wagner now. We're joined today by Dr. Bill Wagner, who's an investigator at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. It's associated with the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Um, Dr. Wagner... Tell me some of the things that your lab is working on here at McGowan. Well, we're um, generally focused on cardiovascular disease. Um, We were interested in everything from imaging disease and being able to diagnose it at an early stage uh, to treatments, treatments that involve uh, medical devices like artificial hearts and uh, tissue engineering approaches where we're trying to uh, develop mechanisms by which we can have the body heal without a permanent structure being implanted. Well, that's very interesting. So let's start there. Why don't we talk about tissue engineering? Um, are we talking about advanced heart disease, or are you working on interventions perhaps earlier in the up, more upstream? For for disease? our tissue engineering efforts, it's it's it, it's both ends of the spectrum. So uh, pediatric congenital heart disease clearly is about as, uh, as um, undeveloped, if you will, as you can. You know, we're talking everything from neonatal to, to early life. And in those cases, what we're interested in doing is developing biodegradable materials that mechanically match the tissue and that can perhaps be combined with stem cells or, or not and be implanted so that the, the child receives a, a structure that will be able to ultimately grow with the child. If the structure can grow with the child, the child does not need to have follow-up, hopefully will not need to have follow-up surgery. On the adult side, with, with actually the, the same types of materials, uh, just in different types, of lo- different types of applications, on the adult side, we're interested in, in heart attack, in myocardial infarction. And we're particularly interested in uh, the patient who's had a, an infarct, had a heart attack, and has not been symptomatic. So it's not been a, maybe a large heart attack, but over time what's happening is that heart muscle is dying, uh, becoming scar, and then it's becoming dysfunctional. So what can be done at that point? Uh, what we're, our approach is to come in with uh, biodegradable materials, um, girdling, if you will, to come in and try and mechanically support that structure and to change the, the healing pathway both mechanically and with cell delivery. Um, so the, the hope would be that 
a patch of this type could be applied and then you know, a, a year down the, the road that patient has a much better outcome in terms of the function of their heart. They still have the heart attack. Mm -hmm. They still have not regenerated, if you will, a, a new heart muscle in that area. But their healing response has not been detrimental to the extent that it would be if they didn't have the, the therapy. So our listeners have heard a lot about scaffolds. Are you talking here about a scaffold that encourages good cells to come in or, or you're providing the cells via stem cells, as you mentioned? Because as we know, the heart, when it heals, it does so with scar tissue, which doesn't work as well right. as regular muscle. So, so our, our philosophy is do it as simply as possible. And that simple nature includes from a regulatory perspective. So if we can get something to happen without having to put cells in, we want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, we want to develop materials that are compatible uh, with being cell delivery vehicles. So a lot of our exciting result, results to date have been, fortunately, with, with just the material itself, showing that by putting in uh, this elastomeric material that we can alter the, the healing response in the tissue. Interesting. Now, if somebody has a patch of scarred tissue in their heart, does that have to be excised and then your device put in its place? or There, there are current approaches that do just that, that um, um, do some type of excision or some type of, of cutting um, to put in a, a mechanically supportive patch that prevents the dilation of the heart. Our approach avoids that. Our approach is to come into the, the epicardium, you know, not, not to go and open the heart, so to do something where we wouldn't have to go on to cardiopulmonary bypass and, and to put that patch onto the heart. So we, we believe it's, it's more attractive than those more aggressive approaches. The, the big question will be can we get um, equivalent or better results than those more aggressive approaches. Do you, in your vision, could this be done relatively less invasively, so without opening up the sternum and Exactly. Whatnot. So our hope, our hope is that in that this is a, a very pliable material that we could do this with a, a, a minimally invasive approach. Using scopes and exactly. whatnot. Yes. Go between the ribs. Yeah, and, that, and like I say, we're, we're doing a lot of work right now without cells, but certainly in vitro um, and some in vivo work we have where we are putting cells onto the material and loading into the heart, but you know, maybe serendipity, maybe, maybe not, we're, we're finding that some of our controls where we don't have the cells, or we found some of our cells with our scaffolds without the cells uh, did fairly well, so we're pushing that. What are your scaffolds made of? They're, they biodegrade, they're right. absorbed by the body. So, so we, we synthesize these materials, they're biodegradable polyurethanes. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, for, for polymer chemists, polyurethane is, is kind of like saying protein to a biochemist. It, it's a broad range of materials that have some bonds in common, but it's really a, there's a lot of flexibility in design. So we're synthesizing polyurethanes that mechanically behave like most people would think a, a elastic material would behave, but that break down into materials that are compatible with the body. Mm -hmm. um, and we can change that chemistry. A, a lot of what we've been doing in, in my laboratory, uh, Dr. Jinjun Guan has headed this effort and in developing different chemistries that allow us to tune how fast the material degrades. Um, so we can pull something off the shelf or you know, out of, out of the, the fume hood, if you will, that uh, 
degrade, say, at uh, two weeks or at two months or at four months mm -hmm. or at, you know, a year. Uh, we're, we're working at building in that spectrum of degradability and also uh, putting in peptide sequences so that the polymer breaks down by enzymatic action, which is how the body rearranges. The body, when it needs to, to go in and remodel, does so by releasing enzymes that clean things up. They're the, the, the early stage of loosening things up for the macrophages to come in and clean things up. So with our polymer, we've put in the same type of sequences so that these enzymes can recognize the polymer and break it up on a time scale that the, the body wishes to pursue, as opposed to hydrolysis, which is the vast majority of biodegradable materials degrade by hydrolysis, where you have an ester bond and it, it degrades based on the water content. Mm -hmm. The heart, as most people know, requires a coordinated set of electrical signals in order to function and be with the proper amount of strength and sequence. What happens to this material in that regard? Or do you just wait, does it, does it not conduct electricity and you wait for the regrowing cells to pick up that job? That, that's right. It, it, it's not conductive and importantly without the cells we're not putting in, we're not specifically putting in cells that are um, responsive. That may throw that out of whack. That's in other right. Words. That's okay. right. So we're, what we're doing with the material is really altering the mechanical environment under which the healing is occurring. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not to say that there may not be uh, electrical issues, but if there's electrical issues, it'll be due to the, the body's own healing response. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get to later experiments where we're putting in stem cells that, you know, adult derived stem cells that, that may become electrically active, then that's a, certainly a, a concern that will have to be evaluated. Mm -hmm. What sort of pediatric congenital defect would this scaffold help to treat? Well, what we've looked at so far is a reconstruction of right ventricular outflow track. Um, so without getting into necessarily specific diseases, there's, you know, in, in, in lay terms, there's a lot of um, pediatric cardiac surgery where tubing needs to be moved. You know, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's rearranging the plumbing, if you will. And the surgeon needs to, on occasion, go to the shelf and pull off uh, a new tubing material. Right now, those materials tend to be um, Gore-Tex or expanded polytetrafluoroethylene, same thing, um, Dacron, or uh, a leather-like material, uh, treated bovine pericardium. All of those materials aren't living, aren't viable, don't become viable. They're permanently with the, the patient, and they're a risk for infection, and they, they don't grow. Mm -hmm. So our, the materials that we're putting in um, degrade over a period of about three months. They're replaced with scar tissue, um, but the patient's own tissue. So it would avoid this need for reoperation, and, and we believe should redu reduce the risk for infection to some extent. So there'd be a number of different procedures where such materials could be used, particularly procedures where there's a constrictive geometry like a, like a conduit. Tell me a little bit more about the shelf life notion. Um, do you envision something like the, you know, a Band-Aid package? You <laughs> open up and... Uh... Well, with a material, that's, that's a lot more feasible than if you have a, a cellular component. Um, people are still working a lot on cellular preservation techniques so that we can achieve the, the off-the-shelf, if you will, nature of uh, tissue engineered products. 
But with the biodegradable, you get a lot more latitude in being able to package and have some type of shelf life. Now, these materials are biodegradable, so there, there would be some type of shelf life. And we haven't, you know, we're not in the development stage where we're working out the details of just how it should be stored, but, but certainly you'd want a dry environment where the hydrolysis would be discouraged. Are you looking at approaches where a patient's own cells, progenitor cells, might be used? Um, so they can be that storage device and you don't have to worry about the shelf life of the cells? Yes, so, so our approaches in tissue engineering are focused on uh, adult-derived, actually patient-derived uh, stem cells. Uh, the, the notion is that that would be the, the quickest to the clinic. Um, so we're collaborating with uh, Dr. Johnny Heward's lab as well as some industrial sources for uh, adult-derived stem cells. And with uh, Dr. Heward's lab, uh, they're focused on the muscle. So a muscle, the vision would be a muscle biopsy would be taken, the stem cells isolated. Um, these would be, then be seated into the scaffold. There may be some training in, in the laboratory, or maybe that seated scaffold would just be put in. Mm -hmm. When you say training in the laboratory, do you mean <clears throat> training it into shape and training those cells to behave as you'd like them to behave? Right. This is the, the you know, the question still remains. We haven't, we haven't convinced ourselves one way or another on this. There's, there's other data that suggests that you need to mechanically train certain tissues for the, the mechanical job that they're going to be doing. If you're going to put in a blood vessel, an artery, that's going to be exposed to that, that systolic, uh, diastolic um, pulse. It is helpful if those cells in that scaffold get exposed to that, that blood pulse and then arrange appropriately. And we know tissues do this. We know, you know, if an uh, astronaut comes back from being in weightlessness, they've lost uh, bone and muscle mass because they haven't been loading. We know a, a tree that's uh, growing along the, the ocean side with a, a breeze coming in throughout its life is going to remodel based on the... the forces of that wind blowing on it. So our tissues do the same thing, and it, it makes sense that if we're going to grow tissue, one might consider doing mechanical training to get that tissue ready for the load it's going to bear as it, it's in its growing stage. Now, I don't want to get too far off track here, but that must be an enormous engineering problem in itself, is replicating <laughs> exactly the loads in the human body well, it may not the be. bench. Yeah, the first thing you'd probably think to try is the human what is it going to be exposed to in the body? But other people have said, well, let's look at the embryo and let's do it that way, which is a, a higher pulse and you know, different, different types of load. And the other point I should make, I've, I've mentioned a little bit, is the, the need for collaboration. Mm -hmm. So we're not, you know, we're not mechanical engineers. We're not biomechanical engineers. We focus on materials and biocompatibility. And we collaborate with the laboratory of Dr. Michael Sachs for a lot of these biomechanical questions and bioreactors. And one of the, the really attractive aspects of working in the McGowan Institute is having the ability to identify not just one, but a, a number of experts in fields that you know you're going to, to need to bring in on a given project and to, to bring those forces to bear as, as you struggle forward with your research. So everybody's sort of elbow to elbow, and it's not just multidisciplinary. It sounds like it's actually interdisciplinary. You can, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and um, yeah, we're, not, we're not elbow to elbow in the sense that we're, we're all in the, the same...
building, but we're close enough that uh, mm -hmm. we can we can establish collaborations effectively. There's a high concentration. I guess what I mean by that is there's a very high concentration within a small square mileage here of yeah. lots and lots of experts on different things. That's right. Let's move on to device biocompatibility. Okay. We're talking about artificial devices or parts thereof, because I mean we can go as big as an artificial heart or liver and as small as a heart valve, I suppose, or even smaller than that. And tell me about the problem with devices, when devices meet human flesh. Well, uh, there's a number of problems. We're focused more on the question, what happens when artificial surface meets human blood? Mm -hmm. And generally the, the risk, at least acutely, is that the blood is going to, if you will, recognize that, um, not in an immunolo immunological sense, but it's going to adsorb proteins onto that material that are then going to lead to a, a blood clot forming. We worry about blood clots forming on artificial surfaces mostly for two reasons. The first, if for instance it's a blood vessel, a, a new artery that we're trying to put in, that that clot is going to get so big that it's going to seal off that blood vessel. And actually that's the reason why we don't have um, synthetic materials to use for coronary bypass grafting is because they clot off at too high of a rate. The other thing that can happen is that the clot forms and it doesn't necessarily grow to a point where it's going to uh, prevent that device from functioning, but it's going to break off. And it's going to break off at a size such that when it goes downstream it's eventually going to lodge somewhere and the tissue downstream of that it's not going to get enough blood and you're going to have tissue damage. And we see this a lot with uh, blood clots that go to the brain and we see strokes. Mm -hmm. So patients um, in, you know, in, the, in the press, people have probably heard about artificial heart patients having strokes and that's basically what's happening. Blood clots are forming on that artificial heart surface and they're breaking free and going up to the brain. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to go to the brain. They can go other places and cause damage. They can go to the kidney. Uh, fortunately, we have a, a large reserve in our kidney, and we can afford to take a number of these hits, um, but eventually you can have a kidney failure, or mm -hmm. they can go down to the toes, and you can have ischemia and, and lose, you know, lose toes because of that, that uh, lack of blood supply and tissue death. So it's a major limitation to blood contacting devices. The way that we get around it the way the community gets around this is by giving patients blood thinners, giving them anticoagulants. And as you would imagine, the risk there is you, you try and balance. You try and make it just enough to prevent those clots from forming, but not so much that they have bleeding risk. And that's, that's possible to do maybe for the majority of the patients, but some fraction of the patients will be at risk for over-anticoagulation, and then you have risks of bleeding into the brain or bleeding in other locations, which can similarly cause uh, mor morbidity and mortality. So what we're interested in doing in this field of blood biocompatibility is really studying what's going on with devices as they're being developed and going towards the, the clinic. So we work with a number of different companies that are making blood pumps a number of different companies making blood oxygenators and trying to work with the design and the materials to minimize the problem. And um, the, the problem was really described by a, a German pathologist in the 19th century, Rudolf Virchow. 
and did, did a number of amazing things in his life, but uh, one of the things that he's well known for is his triad. And he said that, in, in, he said when he was talking about the problem of clots forming in people's veins and their legs, that there's three factors. There's the blood, there's the surface, and there's flow. Mm -hmm. And as an engineer, uh, one looks at that and, and immediately thinks, well, there's your design space. To solve this problem, you have three targets. You can affect the blood, and that's what we're doing right now mostly by giving anticoagulants. Or, or I should and or, you can go after the surface and try and minimize the interaction of the blood with that surface so that it's not, uh, not bad, if you will, try and try, try and make it so it doesn't form the big clots by, by using different materials. Or you can try and work with the flow. The surgeons talk about devices that are well washed. Uh, chemical engineers talk about you know convection and diffusion and residence times. And we work within that space. We work with um, devices that are being developed to try and work and make the blood path uh, more biocompatible, to make surfaces that are more biocompatible, and then to, to study these devices as they move towards patients to try and ensure that our theory is in fact correct, that they're low likelihood of, of forming blood clots and putting a patient at risk for stroke. So tell me what you can do to a device other than controlling the flow. And I guess we've heard a little bit already in this podcast series about continuous flow um, ventricular assist devices where blood pretty much constantly moves through them so it's not sitting and waiting for you know, proteins to collect. Um, but what can you, how can you treat the material of a device to help prevent from forming. Well, well, first let me talk about the, the flow quickly. Just because sure. flow is continuous doesn't mean that it's going to be good. I see. So you can imagine if you have a, you know, a, a wall in the wind. Um, if you go on the downwind side of that wall, you're not going to experience the wind. You're going to have recirculation, if anything. So same thing with a, a device. If you have a, a, a step change, if you have a ridge in that device or you have a, a crevice in that device, even though it's continuous flow, you can, you're actually likely to form a clot hmm. exactly in that region. So continuous flow doesn't necessarily buy you a, a solution. In terms of materials, uh, we're interested in um, both commercial um, approaches to modify surfaces as well as we're developing some of our own approaches uh, to modify the metallic materials that are being used for the continuous flow blood pumps. And Generally, these approaches fall into the, uh, the realm of trying to make the surface more biocompatible by making it more hydrophilic, meaning that it, it, it's more similar to the, the fluid, the blood fluid, um, or um, it's more similar to the, the cell membrane. So doing things to try and make it more passive, less likely to adsorb proteins. Uh, we know that that's not a complete silver bullet, but our, our objective is to reduce the the incidence. Mm -hmm. do you, this may be sort of a silly question, but do you see devices being tissue engineered down the road more and more so that these problems are fewer and fewer? So we have true biocompatibility? Yeah, yeah. That's, so when we give, when we give talks on, on tissue engineering, uh, one of the first slides that we'll use sometimes is we'll show a picture of the, the future of artificial organs from, you know, Life magazine circa 1988, 
and you'll see the, the man standing there with the artificial eye, the artificial hip, the artificial blood vessel, and all these um, synthetic materials in the skeleton where they're, where they're going to be placed. I think most people in the field have, have seen those type of images. And then we show an image from a Business Week article on tissue engineering several years back where it shows a person and it just has little lines going to where tissue's been regenerated. And the, the vision is that we will ultimately get away from synthetic materials being implanted. I think, though, that certainly there will be a, a, a long transition period, if nothing else. But I also think that there's a, a third pathway, which is the device which operates to facilitate the body's healing ability, the body's natural regeneration. So uh, the, the easy one to think about is a, is a crutch. You, know, you, you injure yourself and you... you change the load on that tissue during the healing period and then maybe you go to physical therapy and you interact with other devices to maximize your body's ability to heal that orthopedic tissue. Mm -hmm. What we're finding with, with uh, ventricular assist devices, artificial hearts if you will, um, as well as in other situations that it may be possible for us to go in with some type of device and to rest or to train the tissue in a way that we facilitate the healing. That may just be mechanical, maybe there's some drug delivery aspect to it, but the vision is that there are some devices that are needed temporarily to help the body move down a regenerative pathway that it otherwise would not. And those temporary devices, I think, are going to be a, a big part of the movement towards um, that vision of having the person at the end um, coming out of the process with their own tissue without a permanent implant. For instance, a left ventricular assist device right. that, <clears throat> excuse me, allows somebody with, say, a, a viral um, infection of the heart That's to right. get over it. That's right. Or, or a biohybrid artificial liver that, that buys that patient time. They don't need the transplant. They don't need what comes with the transplant for the rest of their life. They, uh, they need to get through a crisis period. And their liver, liver is actually a great example of tissue that can, has a great ability to regenerate. Um, but we're finding with other tissues, you know, and the cardiac tissue is a good example, that in some cases with appropriate rest of that tissue, you've got to keep the patient alive, but the, the tissue will be able to, to get back to a more functional state. Uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy, where you have heart failure after childbirth, is, is another good example. Uh, a young lady who needs that support and... You know, previously would have received a heart transplant and had what comes with transplantation for the rest of her life, if we can keep that patient alive with one of these devices and also be able to monitor and know when that patient is able to, to take over that load and wean mm -hmm. and, and all that, the technology that would be associated with the appropriate weaning of the device from that patient, how is that accomplished? Mm -hmm. So we're starting to do that. I mean, that example of the postpartum Cardiomyopathy is real. We, you know, uh, Dr. Cormos has uh, had a number of patients where he's, he's done just that. But from an engineering and uh, scientific perspective, there's a, a lot of interesting questions there. How do you do that most effectively? How do you optimize that process? Uh, what device is the best approach to, to allow that natural healing process to occur within the body? And again, maybe you know, there, there's likely a pharmaceutical component to it too. What, what drugs might we give to stimulate the body's regenerative capacities while we're taking over the function and then slowly handing back the function to that, that tissue? 
And speaking of observation, um, I understand you're working on another project um, involving cardiovascular imaging. Why don't you quickly tell us a bit about that? Okay. Um, so in collaboration with uh, Dr. Lisa Villanueva, we've been working together for probably over a decade now on the notion that one can perform targeted imaging in the body with, with ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So it, the, the, the basis of this is that there are microbubbles that are currently used and injected into patients. These bubbles are smaller than red cells. They circulate through the blood and with an ultrasonic uh, probe, just like uh, you would look at a, a baby in the womb, not exactly, but, but the same basic concept. You, you're able to see tissue structures where these bubbles are present. So since the bubbles are in the blood, it, it acts as a contrast agent to allow you to see where blood is flowing. That's useful in, in, uh, in looking at the heart because if someone has a region of their heart that's not getting enough blood under stress, you can see that in a relatively non-invasive way. So what, what uh, Dr. Villanueva and I have been working on is trying to make these bubbles smart. So putting uh, receptors or ligands onto the surface of the bubble so that when they flow by uh, lining of a blood vessel that is inflamed uh, or has markers associated with uh, a tumor or um, is receptive to, to angiogenesis, to, to, to vessel growth, that these bubbles will stick. And if they stick, we can wait for the rest of the bubbles to wash out. And we can look at those regions and identify that that particular tissue or that particular patient has a certain level of inflammation. Or there's evidence that the, that tumor is there. Or that they may be amenable to a, a growth factor therapy for angiogenesis to, to grow new blood vessels. I, I know that transplant patients undergo biopsies frequently to check for rejection. That's right. Could this be an alternative? Yes. So, so one, of the, one of the papers that we, we published a, a few years back, we, we looked just at that. We know that transplantation, when a transplanted organ, transplanted heart, is undergoing rejection, there's a significant amount of inflammation in the blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a perfect, it was a perfect uh, setting for us to study and to test our, our bubbles that we had made that recognized a protein called ICAM-1 that is expressed by endothelial cells in an inflammatory state. And what we showed is that um, we could image, this is in a small animal study, we could image um, a heart that was actively being rejected, whereas a heart that had been transplanted that was not undergoing rejection did not show that the bubbles were binding. And the hope would be that by making these different types of bubbles that one could have this type of assessment done without the need for, for the biopsy or without the need for more expensive imaging modalities like, um, like MRI or, or some of the other techniques that have a higher overhead associated with them. And very quickly, what are the bubbles made of? We're making different types of bubbles. Um, a lot of what we've done is a, a lipid shell-based bubble, so similar to, to what a blood cell would be made out of. Mm -hmm. They have a, a single uh, lipid shell, and then we insert into that shell uh, polymer that allows us to anchor the, the protein or the carbohydrate of interest. We're also um, actively developing uh, polymer 
type bubbles that, that could be injected. And of course, whatever you inject, you don't want it to, to stick around too long. You know, ideally, you'd, you'd want it to be there on the order of, of minutes. Mm -hmm. And whatever you inject has got to break down and, and be completely biocompatible. So that's one of the, the design constraints. Okay. Is there anything we've missed today that you'd like to add? No, I think we I think we covered a lot. Okay. Thanks, Leah. For more information about Dr. Wagner, see the links on our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine coming to you two weeks from now. If you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and cannot provide diagnosis or medical advice. We hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And do join us again in just a few more weeks. 